love for you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19. You do have the, the, the notes on uh, your table, so we'll be able to follow along just fine there. I don't know if, uh, if this, if this uh, crossed your radar at all, but this uh, week ago, Tuesday, the, the last book by Stephen Hawking, the great physicist, uh, who actually died in March of this year, um, and then this book uh, was published. He was, he was in the process of writing it, and his relatives put this book together, came out. The book was called Brief Answers to Big Questions. And the big uh, uh, news story, which wasn't a big news story, because we've been hearing this from Steve Hawking his whole life, was that there is no God, and as, as Hawking puts it, there is no God, no one directs the universe. In fact, in the book, an excerpt from the book, Stephen Hawking writes this, the question is, is the way the universe began chosen by God for reasons we can't understand, or was it determined by a law of science? I believe the second, wrote Hawking. If you like, you can call the laws of science God, but it wouldn't be a personal God that you would meet and put questions to. It's interesting to me to think how in the world uh, someone as brilliant as Stephen Hawking, who studied uh, creation at a level that, that most of us can hardly even imagine, uh, using words, phrases, concepts that stretch our minds to places that, or we just couldn't go there. We can't even, I mean, half the time I would read or hear what he was saying, and I think I need someone to interpret this for me. How could someone like that, looking at, as we'll look in, in uh, Psalm 19, the proclamation of God in creation in detail, how could he come to the conclusion that there is no God? And yet as I was reading and, and studying Psalm 19 this week, I thought about the second part of Psalm 19. So the first part uh, is the, the first seven verses, or first six verses, where it talks about creation. The second part talks about God's revelation in His Word. And I thought to myself, my own conviction was this, Todd, how is it that sometimes you miss that? So while you want to criticize and judge Stephen Hawking for having missed God in his creation, how is it, Todd, that you study His Word and at times, every week, miss the application of that. Well, there's a tension there, isn't there, for all of us. And it's great that we get to sit before God's Word this morning and, uh, and dive into it. So let's go ahead and read Psalm 19 and unpack this and find resolution to this tension. David writes this in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the earth, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, 
enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold and even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Well, as you see before us this morning, this psalm uh, nicely divides up into three sections. The first, verses 1 through 6, gives us a clear picture of God revealing himself in creation. The second, in verses 7 through 11, shows us the Lord revealing us himself in his word. And finally, in verses uh, 12 through 14, you're going to see Christ being revealed in his people. Now let's look at that progression and see where it takes us this morning. First of all, God revealed in his creation. The reason I use the word God there is because the word in the Hebrew here in, in verse 1 is the word El. We talked about that last week. The, the general name for God. So this is God in general. God who is creator revealing himself in his creation. It's interesting to note the way David unpacks this. And I put it there in your notes. First of all, that this, that this revelation that God makes of himself is clear. And a revelation that God makes of himself in creation is what we call in, in theology, the theological term is general revelation. And everyone has access to general revelation. And it's a clear revelation. God makes things clear. Look what it says in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. It's, he declares and He proclaims. And it's clear. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, an, it's a voice that anybody can get a hold of. And you say, well, what, what is it that's made clear? What is God making clear in creation? Two things from these verse, from this verse. First of all, His work. And second of all, His glory. And so God, to all of creation, makes clear His work and His glory. I think this is exactly what Paul was thinking about. Psalm 19, when he spoke about these things in Romans chapter 1. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Remember when we studied Romans, uh, I guess a couple years ago, uh, and Sandy was taking us through Romans. You remember Romans chapter 1 begins with an explanation that God has given us a gospel. Now, how is it that, that first of all, people are sinful? And he starts with those who, uh, who aren't moral, who, just the pagan man. Why is it that they can, we can say that they are sinful? Why is it that they, without the law, without the Ten Commandments, why are they condemned? Why are they without excuse? In Romans chapter 1, at verse 18... Paul writes this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it. It's clear to them. Verse 20, For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world 
in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Paul's definitely thinking of Psalm 19 here. He's saying, the heavens have proclaimed and the skies have declared, the heavens declare that the skies proclaimed God's divine nature and His eternal power. Those things could be clearly understood, but what happens? We, all of us, before Christ enters our life, suppress that truth. We might suppress that truth by declaring, like Stephen Hawking, that there is no God and that science is the only explanation of what we see. We might suppress that truth by creating a lesser God, a, a sun God, as other cultures have done. That's not an attempt to try to find God. That's an attempt to make God the way they want God to be. In fact, if you look at the pagan deities, and the, certainly the ones um, that would have been around the culture at the time when David wrote this, they were actually subject to the, the whims of nature. There was a certain sense in which all these gods were fighting with each other, and they were, they were actually just an explanation by these people of gods that they created in their mind. They were suppressing the truth that there was a creator God with divine power, and God's word is letting us know, I've made it clear to you. And, it, and it's, uh, as you look at creation, all of, all of humanity knows, knows that this couldn't have accidentally been created, and it's not accidentally sustained. So not only is God creator, but it's not like the deists uh, of, the, of the 16th century, the 1700s here in the United States, who imagined God to be like a, like a clock worker who put together an amazing clock, the universe, wound it up and let it go. No, that's not the God of the Bible. No, God is the one who not only created, but he literally sustains everything to the point where, I love this, and it's, and it's, uh, it's uh, awe-inspiring to think about. The very breath that you and I are breathing right now, the fact that our lungs move and take in air, is being sustained by God himself. The fact that you and I can breathe and that our lungs move, that's happening because God in his eternal power sustains that. David is saying it's clear in the heavens. Not only is he saying it's clear, but he goes on to say that it's continuous. In verse 2, day to day, night to night. The communication of God in creation never stops. The voice of God in creation never stops. Day to day, night to night, you can't find any moment when God isn't speaking through his creation, revealing his eternal glory and divine power. Not only that, you see in verses th uh, 3 and 4, the beginning of verse 4, that it's universal. So it's clear communication. It's continuous communication. It's universal. God speaks to all of humanity at all times. There is no human being whom God has not spoken to through his creation. So this clear and continuous communication is coming to everyone everywhere. Last night I had this great privilege of... Uh, of being on this panel with our high school students. Our high school ministry has their big outreach meeting on Wednesday night called True North. And about 150 high school students gathered there. And this one young man is a football player from White Station High School. Um, 
his question was, well, does the person who's in some remote part of the world who's never heard the gospel, um, do, they, do they go to hell? If they've never heard the gospel, how is that fair? And it was a great opportunity to explain what we're looking at here in these first verses of Psalm 19, that no one's never heard of God. Because God has made it clear to all of humanity at all time, His divine nature and eternal power. And what happens? What's the result of that? The result of that, as Paul says, is that in our sinfulness, we want to suppress that truth. And so we're without excuse. So whether we live in Memphis, Tennessee, or we live in some remote part of the world, God has made His divine power, eternal glory, clear to us. And we are without excuse in our sinfulness. It reveals to us uh, our, how holy God is and how sinful we are. And that speaks to the very last point that is made here in these first six verses, and that is that this communication is unavoidable. You can't avoid it. Paul goes, it looks like, is he doing something different here? He's talking about the heavens. He's talking about the, the whole of creation in general. And then there, at the end of verse 4, he starts talking about the sun. And what scholars tell us is what, what David is doing there is he's saying he's taking something specific in creation as an example of the whole. So the whole is all of creation. Now he says, let's just talk about the sun and let me show you this. And he says, the sun comes out of its tent like a bridegroom. And he's using these metaphors of both a bridegroom and, a, and a, in our translations it says a strong man. And the sun goes across the sky. Why does he, use, why does he say bridegroom and strong man? Well, in the time of, of uh, David that he's writing this, uh, if you were getting married, uh, it, was a, it was an event that took place for the entire the entire town. Everybody knew there was a wedding, and it was a wedding that took place outside. Everybody was aware of it. And the moment that the bridegroom came out to go to the wedding was this grand moment where he's dressed uh, amazingly, and, and the groomsmen go and get him, and they bring him out from his house, and they parade him through the town, and it's like this big celebration, this big event for the whole city, and the whole, or the whole town. The whole point is this. David's making this point. Listen to to miss the bridegroom, you'd have to be intentional. In other words, if, if you lived in that town, you're going to know the bridegroom's come out and there's a party about to happen. The only way you'd miss it is if you chose to miss it. If you chose to leave, if you chose to go, ah, I'm not going to pay, I'm going to, a willful neglect of that. In the same way, it says, some, the NIV translates it champion instead of strongman. Strongman's probably better. It says champion running its course, strongman running its course. It makes us think of maybe an athlete, an athlete racing a specific course. But that's probably not the best translation of the Hebrew here. Strongman's a better idea. Running his course just means the direction he's going. Probably the better illustration is of a warrior who's worked himself into such a frenzy and now he is flying at the enemy. And again, David's point is this. You can't miss this guy. If you miss him, you actually chose to miss him. <laughs> it's unavoidable. So the bridegroom who comes out and parades through the city, you'd have to choose to miss him. You're going to see him. And this strong man, this warrior who's worked up into a frenzy and flying at the enemy, 
you'd, you'd have to intentionally go, I'm not going to pay attention to that. That's what he's saying. Creation, and specifically the Son, and, and what God reveals, even in, the, in his taking the Son and, and actually, you know, they say going across the sky, we understand the earth rotating and, and things moving around in the universe. But as their vision, as they watch that, he's saying, it's unavoidable. You cannot miss that communication. You, you'd have to choose, and that's why I think Paul says in Romans 1, they suppress the truth. You'd have to decide, I don't think this has to do with creation at all. And then it goes on to say, nothing, finally, nothing is hidden from its heat. And you could translate that Hebrew also light. It could be light or heat or both. And the point is this. The, the voice of God going out, it's unavoidable. Nothing is hidden from the light of God, the judgment of God. Nothing is hidden from the experience, the warmth of God, the blessing of God. So there's even common blessing. There's common grace. It rains. God sends rain uh, to refresh both the, uh, the fields of Christian people and the fields of pagan people. There's a common grace that goes out. You cannot miss the blessing of God. It's nothing's hidden. Well, then he switches gears in verse uh, 7. And we see in verses 7 through 11, the Lord revealed in his word. Why do I say the Lord? Because he doesn't use the word L there. Instead, in verse 7, the law of the Lord, see it's all capitals, he uses the word Yahweh, the covenant name of God. So now he's moving from the general creator God, creator name for God, to Yahweh, the covenant name for God. He says Yahweh is revealed in his word. This is what we call special revelation. So general revelation is God revealing himself to all people at all times through creation. Special revelation is through his word. We're not going to go through all of these in super detail, but I do want to camp out on the first one, first, uh, first of all, that will help us even understand the rest. It says in verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The word law there is Torah. Torah often refers to the first five books of the Old Testament. That was the, the, the Hebrew Bible at the time of David. So the, the Torah, the complete description of who God is, is perfect. The Hebrew word there is tamim, and it means whole or complete. So perfect, not perfect in the sense of there's nothing you can add to it. It's complete and whole. God's revealed word is complete. And then it says, reviving the soul. Soul there in the Hebrew is our whole being. And that word reviving, the Hebrew word there is fascinating because it can mean turn or return or in some translations it's convert. And this is fascinating because it's saying here that while God's creation reveals His eternal power and glory, God's word, His revelation through His word is actually something that will Convert or turn your very soul. It brings life. It takes and does something new inside you. It, it redeems. It, it, uh, it remakes a creation. Here's where we begin to understand the mercy and the grace of God as it comes out uh, in us. This general revelation that God gives through creation reveals to us that there is a creator God who is holy and powerful and sustain everything. 
But this general revelation cannot save you. It only reveals that we are sinners. It only reveals that we could never, we could never attain uh, uh, acceptance by this God by our own doings. We could never be good enough. We are so other than this creator God. But special revelation, as it says right here in the beginning of verse 7, this reveals the character of God, the character of God including His love, His mercy, His grace. And so here there's redemption, His purposes in salvation. And so David, as he's writing this, he's saying, I see, I see you revealed in all of this, and now I see you revealed in the Torah. And I know that as you reveal your character to me, it actually will revive my soul. It'll, it'll, it'll turn or return me. And out of that flows this progression that is really amazing. All these parallelisms that you often see, especially in Psalms, but you see in other places in the Old Testament. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise. And you, have, you could chart these out if you wanted to. And you'd see the different columns and how it all fits together. But let's just walk through them. It says it's trustworthy. In our Bibles, it says the testimony of the Lord is sure, Literally, the word there means trustworthy. You can trust God's word because it's complete. Everything flows out of completeness. You can trust it. And what, and, and what does that do? It makes wise the simple. This doesn't, mean, this doesn't mean makes wise the stupid. What it means is makes wise the one who is inexperienced or young. So if you're not experienced in this, in this, uh, in this life and you're just young, God's word... God's word can make you wise. You can have what you need to walk through life. We here at Amen know that. That's why we're here. He goes on and says, uh, not only that, um, but that the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the, word, rejoicing the heart. Right here is this idea of, of God's word giving you a, a clear direction to a specific place. Um, that it's that it's like a good map leading you to some place that you couldn't get to without the good map. And so it's leading us to a specific place. Think about what we looked, about, looked at last week in Psalm 16 and how the Word of God did that for us. So it started with preserve me and then, and then a, a pronouncement of all the characteristics of God that could be trusted. And then where did that lead to? It led to Psalm 16 verse 11 which uh, we, uh, was prayed this morning, that the, the place, the place, the path of life leads us to fullness in His presence and pleasures forevermore. So God's Word is right. It's a, it's a road map that leads us to this place of fullness and to this place of pleasures. He goes on and says, in verse 8, that the precepts, I mean, that the communic commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. I wrote down letter D, radiant, because the idea of pure there is this idea of, of light or brightness, like somebody's garments being pure. What we mean is like, they're, they're, you can't almost look at them. There's a glare to what they're having. So the word here is radiant, and, it's, and it light, lightens your way. It, it reveals the way. Psalm 119 is an expansion of Psalm 19. I mean, a massive expansion, largest, largest chapter in the Bible. 
But that's where we read in verse 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's what's being said here by David, that it's radiant and it's enlightening to me. It lights my path. It goes on in verse 9. It says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Now this seems to be a switch here because it doesn't talk about God's word, precepts, law. It says the fear of the Lord. David is just saying the result of God working in someone is going to bring this fear or awe, or maybe a best description of it is this, an attitude of humility, loyalty, and absolute dependence. So as we're looking at, we're, we're seeing God revealed in His Word, He's lighting our paths. We now, responding with humility, loyalty, and absolute dependence, we will find ourselves living in life around us with a cleanness. It will, it will make us clean, not, not make us righteous in the sense that righteous before God. We still are going to get to that part. But that you're going to be living a life, if you're following what God's word says, you're going to find yourself uh, living a clean life. You're going to find yourself um, uh, not entangled by things that would bring you down. Not entangled by the results or the, the consequences of your sin. And then in verse 9, he says, it's righteous altogether. It's true. Uh, letter F there, it's a, it's a righteous standard. Uh, this idea is one of a judgment of a, of a judge saying, hey, this is what you should have done. <laughs> and so God gives us, no, this is, this is how it should have gone. This is how you should have done this. And, and you have a right standard for how that takes place. And then... He begins to conclude this by talking about the preciousness of God's word. And he says, it's more to be desired than gold and even fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. <laughs> Alistair Begg, when he talks about this, I love this. I'm so glad he said this because it made me feel better. I don't know about you, but I mean, I get the money and the gold part, more precious than gold. And, but, but honey like oozing, all, as Alistair Begg said, I'm just not into those like sticky metaphors in the Bible, you know, like he said, and I thought about this too. Remember the other psalm that talks about that, that uh, fellowship with God's, with brothers is like the, the oil dripping down Aaron's beard. And, and, and again, I've always thought that sounds awful to me. Uh, I don't want anything like dripping down and sticky. And, um, and I was so happy that someone uh, like Alistair Begg is like, I don't like that metaphor at all. I can't relate to it at all. So maybe David can relate to that whole stickiness. What, what does it look like for us? Um, this is what Alistair Begg said. He goes, when he looks at this verse 10, he's like, honey and mo uh, money and honey. That God's word would be for us more precious than uh, honey representing the good life, representing uh, great meals, great possessions, great experiences. And, and money representing the accumulation of those things. The security that comes through that. That God's word would be for us more precious than earthly financial security or pleasures on this earth. That's what, that's what David is saying. God, you revealing yourself in your word is, is sweeter to me than any experience, pleasure, person, anything at all on this earth. God, I'd rather have your word 
than be financially secure. I'd rather have your word than be employed. I'd rather have your word than be married. I'd rather have your word than have friendship. I'd rather have your word than food. It's more precious to me than any experience here. I've got to have your word. And why does he say that? Because of verse 11. Because I, in it, I'm warned. I'm warned of things that would steal life away from me. Remember what it said in, in Psalm 16 last week? The, the sorrows of those who run after gods, other gods, are multiplied. When I pursue other gods, my sorrows, my bruises increase. And he says, but by your word here in, in Psalm 19, there's great reward. What is that reward? I want that fullness in your presence. I want those pleasures forevermore. And if I can have those, I will, I will give up everything in this life, even friendship, marriage, sexual pleasure, whatever, in order that I might obtain the reward that you have offered me in yourself, fullness in your presence, pleasures forevermore at your right hand. That's what I want, Lord. And so your word is precious to me. So here, David has talked about the creation, uh, God revealing himself in creation, and, and he hears that voice, and he understands the divine power and, and eternal glory. And then in his word, he's finding these things that are more precious than anything you could imagine on the face of the earth. And what is his response? And I thought about this for us as amen. And these last 10 minutes are key for us. They're absolutely key. Because you could say that Psalm 19... I mean, we can make this like, this is our theme. This is it. Anybody wants to know what, what happens at Amen? Psalm 19. I mean, we are men created by God coming to this place, and we are sinking deep. We are, we are going through God's word, complete, trustworthy, right, radiant, cleansing, righteous standard, precious, so precious, we're going to give up sleep to be here at 6.30 in the morning. And it's, and it's a great reward for us. This is who we are. What does David do with that? In verses 12 through 14. Does David say, man, that was good. I just, I just, what a great message. Thank you, God. What a, whew, check that off. Psalm 19 down. What, what does David do with that? Look what David does with it. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden vault. Keep me back, keep back your servant presumptuous winds. His response is repentance. It's fascinating. It reminds me of Isaiah 6. When Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. And then what did he do? What did he do when he saw the Lord? Did he go and tell everybody, hey, I saw the Lord, it's pretty cool? No, he says, I, I, I was undone. I felt like it was going to come apart. I fell to my knees. I'm unclean. In John, uh, in, the Re in, in Revelation chapter 1, the Apostle John, when he's given this vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, talks about Christ coming in, and he said, I saw one, talking about Christ. And then it says, what did he say? Did he say, and I, I, you know, I rejoiced, I tried to wake up and you know, tell my friends, hey, I had a vision of the Lord. What does he do? It says he fell on his face as if he were dead. 
The disciples in the boat, remember when, when the, uh, the storm is there and Jesus calms there, like, Jesus, why are you going to let us die? Wake up. And Jesus stands up and says, peace, be still. And all of a sudden, the lake goes like glass. What do the disciples do? They go, whoa, that's amazing. That's so cool. Can you do something? No, what do they do? They said, Lord, away from me. I'm unclean. See, when, when we really sink into God's word, what happens is this. We become very aware of our sinfulness. We fall to our knees. One of the other questions that was asked me last night uh, by these high school students was, how do, I share, how do I share the gospel with a friend of mine who I'm pretty sure is not a Christian, but they think they are a Christian? And as we were unpacking that question, I thought to myself, you know, the reason, the reason that the reason we have that scenario is because too many of us are studying God's word and instead of falling on our knees and saying, Lord, cleanse me from hidden faults and presumptuous sins, we're going, wow, that was a great message and we're going out and we're hiding our faults and we're presuming in sinfulness. And people around us look and go, well, you call yourself a Christian and my life doesn't look anything different than your life. So, I'm probably a Christian too. Or, as somebody I've been trying to, uh, a friend of mine, coach um, at one of the schools here. I've been coaching soccer with him for a long time. He's a dear friend. I love him deeply. I've shared the gospel with him. At this point, as far as I know, he hasn't come to know Christ. When we've talked about it, he's literally said this. Well, I look at the families of the boys that I coach who tell me what churches they go to and I'm pretty sure I'm living a better life than they are. And here's the crazy part. I can't disagree with him. Because this guy, this friend of mine, actually lives a pretty morally upright life. In fact, I would say that the, the, the honesty he displays in his life and the consistency would rival <laughs> any of us in here. What is it that we're supposed to do as a result of being at amen every week? We're to fall to our knees, brothers. We're not to walk out of here and go, that was a great message. Instead, we're to let the light shine into our lives and to look at these things. This is especially... Convicting for me this, this week as I studied this. The word errors there really means unintentional sins. David says, how in the world would I ever discern unintentional sins? I know that I have them. I know as he writes in Psalm 51 that we'll get to maybe next uh, in the spring. I, I know that I've been sinful from birth. I, I've got sin I don't even know how to sort out. How can I do that? I need your word. I'm sinful in ways I, I'm just still discovering. I shared this with the students last night. They asked, what's the hardest, what's the greatest thing about being a Christian? What's the hardest part? And I told them, the hardest part is I'm struggling now more with temptation, the revelation of my sin. I thought it was a pretty bad guy when I was in high school. I'm like, wow, 
At 53, I'm like, holy cow, do I got a lot of sin I got to deal with and temptations and struggles. Why has that happened? It's happened because the Lord in His grace and mercy is revealing to me my sin and discerning even those things that I used to think were unintentional, I'm realizing. And then He uses the word hidden faults. Hidden faults are those sins that you and I try to hide. Like your wife doesn't know them. Your best friend doesn't know them. Your roommate doesn't. Those things. He says, God, please declare me innocent from these. I know what they are. You know what they are, God. It reminds us that the desperate need we have for accountability. As one uh, pastor put it, how is it that these, that these men, who uh, many of whom maybe really impacted us at one point, in, uh, either through their writings or their, through their preaching, and then all of a sudden they just fall in some horrendous moral failure, how does that happen? Well, this pastor says it happens this way. They didn't deal with their hidden faults. They kept them hidden. Or as another dear friend of mine said to me years ago when we were talking about accountability, he said, Todd, if you tried to sneak away from God, who would notice and who would come after you? And as we talked about that, I realized Man, if I don't have an answer for that question, I'm already in trouble. If I, haven't, if I haven't confessed my sins, if I haven't been open to another human being, particularly as men, another man, if I haven't said, hey, this is where I struggle, here's where I'm tempted, then I'm in danger. And I've watched men teach me how to do this well. I had a good friend of mine years ago um, who used to, when his wife went out of town for the weekend because she traveled, on Friday afternoon, he'd bring his, his laptop from work. He would, uh, he would, on his way home, stop by my office at church, walk in, put the laptop on my desk and say, hey, take care of this for me. I'm going to ask for it back Monday morning. Because he already confessed to me, Todd, when my wife goes out of town, if I have the laptop in my house, I'm going to look at stuff on the internet I shouldn't look at. And I'm going to, I don't, I don't want to have any hidden fault. David says, please, Lord, forgive me, free me from my hidden faults. And then he says, and boy, this is probably the most convicting for me personally, my presumptuous sins. I actually looked, I looked for other ways. I was like, presumptuous. Why, why do our English Bibles translate presumptuous? Why don't they say willful? Because the Hebrew word there really is to presume. It's to presume. What, what is it? What are we presuming upon? Presume on what? I think it's presuming upon the fact that, that, that we think God will overlook this. And let's just be clear. Even in forgiveness, God doesn't overlook our sin. The forgiveness of God is not God going, you know, that's okay. The forgiveness of God is, that's not okay. Somebody has to pay the price for that sin. That's why the cross exists. The cross reveals to us that no sin was overlooked. It all had to be paid for. The wrath of God was poured out in, in justice in order that we could be set free. So now on this side of the cross, presumption, 
Presumptuous means this, I think. When we presume upon the grace of God. When this thought goes through our head. Oh, that temptation's too overwhelming and I've struggled with it my whole life and I'm not going to resist. I know God's going to forgive me later today. I know God will forgive me tomorrow. That's presuming upon. David says, Lord, please keep me back from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Let them not rule me. Let me not be ruled by these things. So how is God revealed? How is Christ revealed? God is revealed in His creation. The Lord, the covenant God, is revealed through His Scripture, through, his, through the Word. And Christ, the Redeemer, is revealed through His people as we respond to the spoken Word of God. We now become the declaration of redemption because people see us repenting, falling to our knees, broken before God's Word, responding to that. And out of that, what happens? Out of repentance comes resolve. Verse 14. This is often a phrase you hear pastors pray or say before they preach, right? Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. We usually say this before the sermon. David's saying at the end. David's saying in a response. I see your eternal power and divine glory. I understand your covenant from your Word. I am broken. I am sinful. Please keep me from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Now, Lord, as a response, as a resolve, please let the words of my mouth, the things I say, and the meditations of my heart, the things I even think. That's why in, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's five, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus says, you think you haven't committed adultery? I tell you, if you've ever lusted after a woman, you've broken that commandment. You say you've never murdered anybody? I tell you, if you hate your brother, the meditations of your heart, David is saying, Lord, work in my heart. Change even when, when nobody's seen anything, when nobody knows. Work those things in me. Why did I say God revealed in creation Lord revealed in His Word. Christ revealed in His people. Where do I get that? Very last phrase in this. It says, O Lord, my rock, in fact, very last word, and my Redeemer. Redeemer. One of the things I want us to never forget as we study God's Word is that from cover to cover, Christ is there. From cover to cover, Christ is there. There's David saying, this all depends on a Redeemer. Why does God speak and reveal Himself at all? He does it so that for His glory He could save us. That's why He speaks it all in creation. That's why He didn't just wipe us out for His glory. In order that He would save us. How can David say in the verse just above it, declare me innocent from hidden faults? How can he say that? Because he knows I have a Redeemer. And brothers, what I long for us, I, it's, it's incredible, and I'll, I'll end with this. It's absolutely incredible that you men come here week after week. When I tell you you encourage me, I'm not just saying it up here to make you feel better. You deeply encourage me. You've been for 17 years at this church. 
to know that this happens week after week and that you show up deeply encourages me. Your commitment to God's word. But let us not, let us not miss the whole point of Amen Bible Study. The whole point of Amen Bible Study is that gripped by God's word, that we would walk out of here and we would, we would live as those who have a Redeemer. That we walk into our workplaces and our relationships as those who have been declared innocent from our hidden faults. As those who literally have a, a rock in God, a Redeemer. And so when we walk out of here, we don't walk with a heads down, oh Lord, let the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth please be acceptable. I'm not free. No, brothers. Last word in this psalm, Redeemer. You've been redeemed. You have been declared innocent. God has freed you from your sin. He has not overlooked it. He's paid for all of it. Everything. Everything you did yesterday. All the unintentional sins. He's freed you from that. You have a Redeemer. And so we have to walk out of here with our heads high, saying, may the meditations of my heart, and the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, be acceptable in your sight. In fact, I want to do that right now. I want us all to stand. If you have your Bibles in front of you, let's say this and I'll pray and we'll be done. Let's just say verse 14 together. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, these are the men we want to be. We want to be verse 14 men. Lord, we love your word. We wouldn't be here if we didn't love your word and find it more precious than sleep, than gold, than the good life. And we are so thankful that you are a redeemer. Now, Lord, by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit that gives us not only an assurance of our salvation, an assurance of forgiveness, but gives us the power to live a godly life in Christ. May we walk out of here as amen men who display your word, who reveal you to this city. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.